And if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Timothy, we are systematically just making our way through this just amazing letter, Paul's final letter right before he was executed. And if you're new here, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here. It is just a joy to have you with us this morning. And while you're looking for 2 Timothy, you know, there are a lot of people that are out there looking for treasure. And I'm thinking specifically of all these sunken Spanish galleons that have went down between Cuba and Florida and along the coast of the United States. And there are treasure seekers. Now, the, the likelihood of you ever finding, like, significant treasure, really small. But there is a lot out there. And there's some people that have kind of given their lives to finding these loads of bars of gold and silver and all these emeralds. One guy by the name of Roger Miklas, who works for a large salvage company, said this, quote, By a very conservative estimate of the treasure still lost off the U.S. coast between North Carolina and Florida, there is enough to put $1 million in the pocket of every man, woman, and child living in New York, okay? Another guy, Mel Fisher, you probably heard of him uh, because of his amazing discovery, but he said this uh, before he died. Once you see the ocean bottom carpeted with gold coins, you will never forget it. Now, Mel Fisher uh, discovered kind of the, the, the amazing, legendary Nuestra Señora de Atocha, okay? It is referred to as the Bank of Spain, okay? The, the worth of the treasure that they have found is estimated right now to be $1.1 billion in gold coins, silver, all these artifacts. And uh, they have given their lives to actually bring up this treasure and to find it. Now, when I say given, you, given their lives, the cost has been really high. Certainly there's the cost of equipment, cost of legal expenses, but even human lives. In their search party, four people have already died, including his son and his daughter-in-law trying to search and bring up these treasures. But you see, they're, they're willing to make those sacrifices because why? They think it's worth it. I mean, after all, this is their greatest treasure, and they'll give even their lives to have it. And I'd like to ask you, what is your greatest treasure. I mean, what is it that you would be willing to sacrifice that fires you up, fills you with passion? Like, you're willing to go through adversity for, give yourself fully. I will tell you, in the lives of spiritually healthy Christians, they hold Jesus Christ and the gospel as their preeminent treasure. It is what is valued most. And you're like, well, Why is it? Why do Christians hold Christ and the gospel in such high regard? Why are Jesus Christ and the gospel the greatest treasure of our lives? To answer that question, we have this amazing passage, passage, 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, where we're going to see just why that is. Now, let me just kind of bring you up to speed what's been going on here. So Paul, writing 2 Timothy, this is his final letter shortly before he is executed. He is currently in a Roman dungeon. He is waiting a sentencing because of his faith in Christ. He knows he's going to die, and God has him write one final letter and find what he has written right here. And he's writing to Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus, uh, over 800 miles away. And he writes what is of most importance, and he tells them about the greatness of the gospel. And the first thing that we see about the gospel is that it is the truth that redeems and transforms us. So take a look, verse 8. He says, Therefore, 
Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So Paul calls calls to mind at the very beginning, you have a rich heritage. Your mother, your grandmother, me, we poured into your life. You've also been given spiritual gifts by God, and you're to kindle afresh those gifts. And furthermore, you have the power of God's presence. And you need not be fearful, like you see in verse 7. He says, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. And Timothy was likely feeling timid, being fearful. And that's why Paul says, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his uh, prisoner. Don't be ashamed. Do not pull back. Go into reservation. Um, Be reluctant. You see, it is very common that when you go through difficulty, you can pull back. And Timothy is one of those that was doing it. And what that looks like is you like suddenly you're not identifying with Jesus so much. You're not taking the initiative on any like spiritual conversations. In fact, investing your life for the cause of Christ, his gospel, the kingdom, not so much. And that's what was happening with Timothy. And Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. What is, what is the Lord's testimony? Why, it's the testimony of his life, Jesus' words, his works, his way of life. It's the testimony of his suffering on our behalf, the scourging, the horrific death, the, the crucifixion. Oh, I know that right now, you know, we wear crosses, it's jewelry. But if you ever saw a crucifixion, you wouldn't even be able to look at it. It is so horrific. It was the most humiliating, painful death that Rome could bring about and exact out of people, especially if they wanted to send a message. That's the testimony of our Lord. He died and paid the penalty for our sin. It's the testimony of our Lord that he was buried in a tomb for three days, and then he was resurrected. New life, new body. And I want you to know that is the testimony of our Lord. Any who believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Paul says, Timothy, I don't want you to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Join with me in suffering. Suffering is any sort of inconvenience or um, pain that comes with your identity with Christ or the furthering of his kingdom. And for Timothy, he was likely experiencing some suffering. Uh, There are some reasons why he was pulling back. One, even though he's a pastor, I want you to think about this. Who's in power? You got Nero, okay? And Nero is an egomaniac. And he is now starting to up the pressure on Christians. You know, at first, when Christianity emerges on the scene with the resurrection of Jesus and these believers, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, Rome uh, couldn't quite figure it out. And they just like, well, it's a sect of Judaism, you know? And like, well, there's some way they fit in. I'm not sure why they're fighting all the time. But as it became clear that these Christians, though many of them were Jewish and they have a Jewish Messiah, they won't compromise on the issue of Jesus being Lord of their lives. So... Caesar, like, you have to bow the knee to Caesar, and you have to confess that Caesar is Lord. All of a sudden, Christians are like, no, we can't do that, because we actually really know who the Lord of the life of life is, and you're not it. I want you to know, if you're an egomaniac, that's not going to sit too well with you. And so the persecution started picking up. They realized that these authentic Christians, they're not willing to compromise. 
They know whom they believe, and it makes all the difference in their lives. And so you've got Roman persecution, but you also have, in Ephesus, a church in trouble. And the reason the church was in trouble is not because they didn't have a good pastor. They did. Timothy. It's because you had divisive people. And if I want you to know if you really want to demoralize a pastor, well, all you have to do is get some divisive people, and all of a sudden they're kind of tearing things up because things aren't quite the way they want it. And they'll do it with a smile on their face, but I want you to know people like that, they just shred churches. And they demoralize pastors. And furthermore, Timothy was also facing, and it's, it's a theme that you'll find throughout 2 Timothy, you'll, he was facing false teachers, deceptive, alluring people away from the truth and those who teach the truth, creating great fractures and separation. All of this Timothy was facing, and, and Paul says, I don't want you to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You see, Timothy was becoming tentative, fearful, timid, like you saw in verse 7, right? It's kind of like um, if you're a wide receiver, okay? And what happens is when you're a wide receiver and you go out and you do your route and they throw a pass your way and you've got to stretch out to get that ball, well, you get drilled a couple times and all of a sudden you might be running the routes, but when that pass is out there, uh, you're like, it's called short-arming the ball. You're like, don't put your arms all the way because you're trying to protect your ribs. That's kind of what's happened with Timothy, or like if you're a quarterback, so maybe you watched a football game recently, I don't know, and, and like the quarterback was just like fodder for linebackers and those linemen, and they were tearing you up. I want you to know what happens is when the line is like a sieve, and like the lineman is like, oh, I don't want to get in the way of you, you're, you can bench 500 pounds, you know, and they go right after that quarterback. What happens is the quarterback actually forgets he's on offense, and he's on the defense of self-preservation, and that's, that's actually what happens, though, with Christians. You take some shots. You know, I'm not the only one that's been, it's had some awkward family gatherings where you're the token Christian, right? A few snide remarks, like, uh, they're a person of the faith. You know, oh, yeah, you're the big believer in Jesus, you know? Or maybe you've taken some heat at work. Or maybe, maybe you actually, it, didn't, it cost you a promotion. Like, yeah, I think we're going to go with this gal, you know? Not sure your identity with Jesus. I want you to know, you identify with him, it might cost you something. You're having a block party, but you're not invited because you don't really know how to party with the rest of us. Something weird about you and this old Jesus bit, we'll just, we'll have the party without you. you but maybe, and we, we look at this around the world, and I'd encourage you to keep your pulse on what's going on with persecution. Maybe it's been far more than a dirty look. Maybe you've been apprehended, harassed, had your job lost. Maybe your home church was like just completely overrun by soldiers. Maybe you were incarcerated, tortured, even killed for your faith. You see, we'll suffer for what we find most significant. And that's what Paul is saying. Timothy, we have an amazing gospel. And do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me as prisoner. Join with me in suffering for the gospel, not in your own strength, but how? According to the power of God, God's strength. You and I are depending and delighting upon him. You try to do this on your own, it's not going to happen. What, what will happen if, you, if you're like, I think I'll just live the Christian life on my own? You're going to go incognito really quick. You're going to want to like, I don't want anybody really to know. I just want to fit in. I want to go with the flow. But you will be willing to suffer 
if the gospel is your greatest treasure and you're doing so in the power of God. And then right here, you have the grandest, perhaps the grandest description of the gospel in the entire New Testament. And you you can see it. It begins in verse 8. You see the word gospel. And then in verse 10, you're going to see it ends with the word gospel. And these form like two brackets And I want you to see the greatness of the gospel that not only redeems us, but transforms our lives. And so he says in verse 9, look at this. It is the gospel in Christ who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Look at what God has done through the gospel. He has saved us has the idea of rescuing. You know, Jesus Christ, he saves us from the penalty of sin. For the wages of sin is what? Death. So that's why Christ had to die. He dies in our place. But do you know that Jesus also saves us from the power of sin? We no longer have to be dominated by iniquity. We don't have to be slaves to sin. Why? Because we have the power of God. We have the Spirit of God living within us, whom we received at the moment of salvation. And do you know that Jesus will one day save us in the very presence of sin, when we're with him in eternity? He has saved us. But notice what he also has done. And here's where a lot of folks have, have kind of missed this. He has also called us with a holy calling. He has called you to be holy, which means set apart, that our lives reflect the lordship of Jesus Christ, his holiness, his purity, his values, his morality, his kingdom. We are kingdom representatives. He has saved us and called us somewhere along the way. We've we've got this idea like, well, you just believe in Jesus, okay? Just, Just say you do it. Just say you believe in him. And they pretty much just live however you want. Just do whatever you want, right? And just and eventually die, and you'll go to heaven because you said that you believed in Jesus. That's really not the gospel. The gospel is like you see portrayed right here in verse 9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling. He's given his Holy Spirit to make you holy. Where you're living and behaving and walking and loving differently. Why? Because it's God at work in you. And this great salvation... This has nothing to do with your works. See that? It's not not according to our works. It's not your effort. It's not your religious behavior. It has nothing to do with religious attendance. It has nothing to do with like, well, I went through some certain procedures or I was baptized or I took a sacrament or whatever, and that makes me fine with God? No. It's not according to your works, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is what? The gift of God, not a result of works, that what? So no one should boast. You see, your good works, that doesn't merit you salvation. But I will tell you this, doing good, living a holy life, investing in God's kingdom, identifying with Christ, good works, why that is the outcome, the result of truly having salvation. God fully intends in Ephesians 2.10 to actually do his works through you, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But I want you to know it's not your good works that brings about your salvation, because why? Look at this. It was according, verse 9, according to his own purpose, God's plan, and grace, his unmerited favor, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? What does it say? 
from all eternity. Whoa, wait, wait a second here. When does salvation start? Why, it starts from all eternity. We could refer to it as eternity past. The greatness of the gospel is actually revealed right here in this verse to show us that this has been God's plan all along. In fact, if you want a great text on this, you can look at Ephesians chapter 1, like verses 4 through 6. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why is that? Because God is going to declare and demonstrate his character, his grace, his faithfulness, his justice, by even allowing sin so that we who are fallen people living in a fallen world will experience grace, the power of his redemption, the transforming work that he brings about in our lives for his glory so that we'll have great understanding, great experience, great joy of the character of God. And he says, this all gets started from eternity. And notice what he says right next after that. In verse 10, he says this, this pre-existent grace has now, verse 10, been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this pre-existing grace that existed from all eternity, it has become manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the eternal Son of God has actually entered into humanity. He fulfills promises that there would be a Messiah, all given through the Old Testament, all pointing out all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that he would come and that he would live among us. He would be incarnated. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. The eternal Son of God, he doesn't begin at this conception like with Mary. He is self-existent because he is God. But it's at the incarnation where he actually enters into humanity. And he lives a perfect life, dies a perfect death, and becomes the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the resurrected one that satisfies God's just wrath against sin. That's what he says here. It's this great grace referred to in verse 9 has been revealed by the appearing, the epiphania of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And what did he do? Look at verse 10. Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What is the greatest fear of humanity? Death, right? Like, whoa. And it comes for everyone. And so there's folks like, whatever I can do to like, avoid it or try to preserve my life. And so you've got like, uh, cryogenically freeze yourself like Ted Williams or people uh, giving all this like, food or trying to appease false gods, false teachers. I want you to know, like the text says, that Christ Jesus has abolished death. He is the God-man. The word abolish has the idea to render inoperative. It's not that you and I don't die. It's that the sting of death is taken away because we who believe in Christ, we know that we will be with him forever. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. We recognize this is just a dot on the line of eternity. We believe, who believe in him, we will be with him forever. Jesus has abolished death, but notice what he also has done. He has brought life 
and immortality. You see that in verse 10? To light through the gospel. The greatest longing of people is immortality. And I want you to know who brings it. Christ. And it's not just to live forever because we will. This is something that's been placed in us by God. This idea of living forever. And you will. It just really depends where either with God, in the presence of Christ, because you're believing in him, because you believe the treasure of the gospel, or apart from him, separated forever. But that is the decision before you. And the greatness of the gospel is that we can have eternal life, abundant life, life that comes from Christ, all made possible by who? Jesus Christ. I mean, you see this longing. Uh, Remember when you took uh, world history? probably like in sixth grade or so, you came across a guy named Ponce de Leon. Remember that? Spanish conquistador, right? And he makes his way all the way to Florida, okay? And he's doing a lot of work for Spain, you know, and they're trying to discover trade routes and how they can uh, maximize this kind of new world. But the other thing that he's kind of looking for is like, there's this fountain of life. And we think maybe it's over here because we've looked for it in Spain. We can't find it. It's got to be over here. And we'd like to have it to be able to drink that water and to live forever, Right? I want you to know, if you want to experience immortality and the presence of God, joy, peace, purpose, I want you to know where it's found. Jesus Christ. He is the one who has brought life and immortality to light. How? Through the gospel. Do you remember what Jesus said? John 11, verse 25, he said this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Do you believe this? That's what Jesus is offering. He's offering the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. So let me give you a definition of the gospel. It is simply this. this. The word gospel means good news. It is the good news that by grace, God forgives and redeems all who are broken over their sin believe in the perfect, perfect life, substitutionary death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and receive eternal life as a disciple in his kingdom. This is the kingdom gospel. Follow me. I am the one who provides salvation all by grace, preexistent grace from eternity past, manifested in this life through me. You believe in me. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you life eternal. I will give you hope. I will give you immortality. I will abolish death. And Paul says, not only this, but this very one has, verse 11, given me a role in his kingdom, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. You see that word appointed? It means like to be strategically placed. Like, for instance, it's referred to like foundations, investments, um, armies, appointments, political office. It's to have like, to be perfectly placed. Paul says, you know what? I am strategically positioned in my role. God has me just where he wants me. So like if you are uh, experiencing an attack, you shift your army to take, take it head on. God has appointed, Paul says, him for particular roles. Like the first role he says is, I've been appointed as a preacher, This is one who announces God's kingdom agenda, has the idea of a herald, 
Okay, so not like just a town crier. So like a town crier in ancient world, this is the person that would just kind of make public announcements, okay? This is what's happening, okay? It's not like they were running around crying all the time. They were announcing things, okay? But the herald represented the king, and he brought official messages. And sometimes heralds represented the king or the emperor to other kingdoms, other countries, and he would go and give this message. And Paul says, you know what? That's my role. I'm a preacher, I don't make up the message. I don't compromise it. I just give it straight the way I received it. That's my role. I'm a preacher. I'm also an apostle. This is one who fulfilled the role as one of Christ's authoritative leaders, one who is laying the foundation of the church. He says, God gave me that role. In fact, he refers to it in verse 1. I'm an apostle, an officially sent out one. And furthermore, he says, I'm also a teacher, one who instructs others as to the meaning and application of God's word. And what Paul is doing, he's saying, listen, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel because God has a role in our lives. In fact, I want you to know, like, I see that I am strategically placed. I am appointed. This is my role. And by telling him this, he's saying, Timothy, you have a role. You've been gifted. You've got power, power from God. You have a role. And I want you to know the same is true of us. Do you know that you are strategically appointed? That God has positioned you right where he's placed you? In your family, in your school, in this community, in this church, you have a role. You are strategically positioned. You've been gifted. You have God's power. You have a rich heritage that you can think back on, and when you do, it will replenish your soul. But I want you to know that God fully intends to use you. And that's what he's calling to mind. And that's why he says this. He says, verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things. I'll do it, because I recognize this is far greater than me. He says, but I am not ashamed. I'm not holding back. I'm going to invest. I'm going to take the initiative. I'm going to make Christ known, and here is the only way that'll happen. And this is why. And I've got this underlined several times in my Bible, verse 12. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. This is how the kingdom gospel advances. I know whom I have believed. In fact, it's the only thing you really need to know because it is Christ who is our Redeemer and our Rock. He's our Savior and our Lord. He is our friend and our confidant. He's the one who means everything to us. And Christ and his gospel is the greatest treasure in our lives. I know whom I have believed. In fact, he says, and I know that he will be able to, you see this? to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. I've given him, Paul says, everything. And I know that there's going to be a day where I'm going to be evaluated, judged, not like judged for salvation because that's already been taken care of by Christ, but I know that I'm going to be evaluated by what I did with what God gave me. In Paul's case, it was much. And I simply want to be found faithful. How about you? What are you doing with what God has given you? opportunities, gifts, experience, the word. What, is, what are you doing with the resources that God has entrusted to you? 
Paul says, you know what? I know that I can give everything to him because he is faithful. And like he says, he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. This is the blueprint from eternity of what God is doing. You know, sometimes we like to think like, well, you know, the reason that um, I'm a Christian is uh, because I'm smarter than most, or I, I'm more sensitive to God, and I'm spiritually attuned. Like, no, not really. You're not all like just like the Phi Beta Kappa, and like God's like, boy, I really got to have you in my kingdom. Not at all. We all are tremendous sinners needing the gospel of grace. We need everything that Christ provides. And when we see the greatness of the gospel, what happens is we see that this indeed is the truth that redeems us and transforms us. Let me show you something else in verses 13 and 14. The greatness of the gospel is also this. It is the treasure entrusted to us. One thing I don't want you to miss, the gospel isn't really yours. Oh yeah, you receive it, but you know who the gospel belongs to? This eternal message of salvation? The gospel belongs to God. It's his gospel. He's the one who put it into motion. He's the one who conceived it. From eternity past, it is God's gospel. And for this reason, Paul tells Timothy, listen, you need to, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Retain has the idea of, like, hold fast the example. And standard has the idea of, like, pattern or, like, an outline. So it was used of like architects who would like, you know, sketch out a plan or like an artist, you know, before they make the masterpiece, they kind of sketch things out. Or if you're a writer, you're like, hey, this is going to be like my main outline. And you kind of put the introduction, the body, these are the points, here's my conclusion. And then you fill it in. What Paul is saying here in verse 13 is you need to retain the standard of sound, healthy words, the words of God which show us the gospel, which you have heard from me in the faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. You hold it in faith, which is confidence in God's word, and in love, love that comes from God. This is, these are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're to hold the pattern. We not only fulfill our roles, but we realize that we're in a long line of succession who simply will not compromise the gospel. And we hold to the word of God because the word of God helps us understand the fullness of all that God is doing in this great treasure of the gospel. We continue the pattern, and we do so by preserving the integrity of the message. And second, we follow the pattern of sound teaching. So if you have been a Christian for any point of time and you started reading your Bible, you recognize the high premium that God puts on knowing his word. And that's because his word points us to him. It reveals his character and it points us to Christ. And so he says, you retain the standard of sound words and you do it in faith and love. And then he says, verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that has been entrusted to you. To guard, this is a word used for like prison guards or shepherds or city watchmen. They're guarding, they're protecting. He says, Timothy, that's what you need to do. You need to guard this treasure. And that's how he refers to it. Do you see that? The treasure which has been entrusted to you. Whose is the gospel? Why, it's from God. But he has entrusted it to you. We're not free 
to redesign it, refashion it, uh, to try to make it like a little more hip for contemporary society, we are to hold fast the good news. We are in a long line of succession. It's not our gospel to toy with. But I want you to know, this gospel and that word, you see that, that good, uh, this treasure, this good treasure, it is absolutely beautiful because it's from God. But make no mistake, the gospel and the word of God, they're under attack. And they have been now for a long period of time. Years ago, I was staying at a host home, and uh, I was doing some teaching, and uh, the lady of the house uh, told me at breakfast, and we're all sitting here having breakfast, about a, a situation that happened when she was a college girl, freshman. She went to a, it would be kind of like known as a Christian university. I'm putting that in quotes, okay? At least it has some historic past with, with ties with Christianity, okay? And when convenient, they'll play that card. But oftentimes, not so much, Right? And she's talking about her when she was in freshman, a freshman in Bible class. And the professor, with all these freshmen, he goes, okay, this is Bible class. Does anybody here believe that the Bible is true? And no one but one girl, a girl by the name of Sydney, put up her hand. And so Sydney puts up her hand. And she said, this, this professor she, he just tore her up like I'd never seen before. Made her look like the most ridiculous thing on earth for believing the truth of the word. And she said, you know, I really regret that I didn't put my hand up. And she says, I've, I've talked and confessed this to God, and I've learned from this lesson. But I want you to know, when the heat is on, there are very few people that are saying, listen, <laughs> I believe in the truth of the word. I believe in the power of the gospel. And I want you to know, being ashamed of the gospel, it can happen. What happened may be more prevalent than you and I would like to think. All of us can go incognito when it's convenient. But this is kind of like the drumbeat theme. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How are we to guard this? Look at verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us this treasure that has been entrusted to you. The word of God, it's under attack, right? And the gospel, right now, it's like, people are like, hmm, pretty offensive. Indeed, it is offensive, right? People don't like to hear like, I'm sinful? Come on, man, I'm, I'm fine, right? I made a few mistakes. What do you mean I need Savior? What are you talking about total humility? What are you talking about like placing myself in a situation where I've yielded everything to Jesus? That doesn't work so well. And so what's happened is, we're going to customize the gospel. Like, let me give you a kind of an illustration of this. How about the Mona Lisa? I'm sure you've heard of it. It's the most popular, like most famous painting in all the world. 16th century portrait done by Leonardo da Vinci, right? Uh, it's actually, it's, it's placed in the Louvre in Paris, France. Uh, it's only been moved out of the Louvre twice. One time, 1962, brought to the United States. It was insured at that time for $100 million at, uh, to do the calculation. That would be over $1 billion at this point, okay, in today's dollars. Um, but, you know, it actually has been attacked on some different occasions. So, for instance, in 1956, a man threw a rock at it, okay? And they're like, oh, we can't have that. So then they put a bulletproof casing over it. But then also, uh, in 2009, there was a woman who hurled a teacup at it. And then you remember, like last year, May 2022, uh, there was a climate change protester uh, 
dressed and concealed as an elderly uh, person, and then there was this pastry smear on this. And this made big news, right? You are attacking the Mona Lisa, right? Not going to work. But let's say the people that were in charge of the Mona Lisa, the curators of the museum, they're like, you know, nice painting and all, but it needs some help. We need, like, we need to put some flowers kind of around here, dress it up in like, <gasps> look at that dress she's wearing. Like, it's like 400 years out of style. We can help her. And like, oh yeah, well, since we're at it, Take a look at her hair. Yikes! Who wears their hair like that? So out of vogue. I'll tell you what. We got some good artists. We're going to make this We're gonna make this even better. We're going to change it up a little bit. I want you to know that even tried something like that, there would be a huge public outrage, right? Because you just don't mess with the Mona Lisa, right? So why is it that we feel so comfortable messing with the gospel? Taking out, well, I don't want to say this. And we, we've watered it down to such an extent that people don't even know it's the gospel because it's not. Well, all we're doing is like, well, all you need to know is that Jesus loves you. And we're really excited about Jesus. Yeah, that's great. We don't talk about sin. No, 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 no. We don't, we don't explain it. We don't talk about the fact that the wages of sin is death and that you're a sinner. And you're a sinner by nature. Oh, that's not going to fly. People don't like to hear about things like that. We will never talk about hell. <laughs> never. Why? We'll just pretend it doesn't exist. We're just all going to heaven. Really? Is that really the gospel? All you need to know is that Jesus loves you. And I want you to know, friends, that is the message that is going out. That is like the equivalent of messing with the Mona Lisa, only eternally exponentially so. The gospel is not yours and mine to toy with. It belongs to God. And our job is not to customize it for the culture, but our job is to treasure it and hold it fast. It's kind of like, have you ever read a book on the Civil War or maybe even watched like a, a Civil War movie? You ever notice like, like when the, they're fighting a battle, they're leading the charge, they've got their colors, right? And the flag goes down. And what happens if someone's shot down and that flag goes down? Somebody else, next man up, picks that flag back up and they're charging and they're moving forward. That's what we're to do. I know that you're familiar with this uh, very famous picture of Iwo Jima and the raising of the flag, February 23rd, 1945, during World War II. This picture always gets me. What are these men doing in this desolate, dark land? They're not capitulating. They're not surrendering the colors. They're raising the flag. And I show that to you because that's what we're to do. We are to raise the flag of the gospel. We are to live our lives with no surrender. That is what we are to do. We need to identify with Jesus Christ and him crucified. We have to willing, willingness to take the initiative on some spiritual conversations. We have to take the initiative to be able to share our story, to be able to tell people the gospel in our lives, what God has done in our life once we're sinners, how Christ has saved us, and what life in Christ really looks like. We need to involve ourselves in his kingdom, all in, not holding back. You know why? Because we have as a goal for every believer that we are to prepare to share. You see, Jesus Christ and his gospel, why they're the greatest treasures in our lives. And I'd like you to meet a young lady in our church who just exemplifies the treasure of the gospel and to see the power of a testimony and how this testimony was used in her life. Okay. <laughs> uh. 
12 years ago, I sat in a college class and I heard someone say that he used to know Jesus like he knew Abraham Lincoln from a book, but now he knew him as a savior, as a friend. Um, and I thought to myself, I know Jesus like Abraham Lincoln. And he wasn't personal to me. A few years later, I was working and I sat by a coworker who talked about Jesus um, in a way that made me feel like she believed he was true without a doubt. Um, it wasn't something that she believed personally, but just a truth that was that existed. Um, and that's what led me to Christ, was hearing her testimony, hearing his testimony, and then studying the Bible myself. I went from being someone who thought that the Bible was a book of rules and things that we should follow, um, to understanding that it's a love letter from God to his people that he wants relationship with us, that he sent Jesus for us because of his deep love for us. Now, I desire that everyone I'm in contact with hears the gospel, whether they're a believer or not, um, because believers need the refreshing truth of the gospel to remind them of who they are and whose they are, and non-believers need it as well. I gladly serve in every capacity in church because I want everyone to hear the gospel. If I'm telling it to a two-year-old, that's fine with me. If I get to say it to an adult, that's great too. And if I have to hold a screaming baby so that way other people can hear tell the gospel, then that's what I'll do too. Um, it is the most important thing that we can share as believers. You know what that is, don't you? That is an example of a woman who is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. You see, the Jesus Christ and his gospel, they're the greatest treasures in our lives. And I'm going to now lead us in a time of prayer before communion because I want to give each of us an opportunity to come before the living God, the glory of the gospel, and to celebrate and to worship Him. So if you want to just bow your heads and close your eyes, let me just lead us. Would you right now just thank God for His grace in your life? Would you thank Him with great sincerity and prayer that He's redeemed your life from the pit? You and I were spiritually dead working of eternal grace brought us life. Life in Christ. He did it. He gave us the ability to respond. Would you thank him? And for the times that we have not walked in holiness, we are saved and called with a holy calling. Would you right now, just as the Spirit of God brings to mind ways, incidents, words, are not in keeping with his holiness, that are sin. Would you just confess this before him who loves you eternally in Christ? Would you thank him for the gospel of your salvation? Would you now just bring the needs that you're aware of, people that are hurting, 
issues going on in your own soul, the devastation that we're learning about taking place in Morocco. Just as God brings these matters to you, would you bring them to him and ask for his mercy, hope, peace, and perspective. God to help you understand what your next steps are. Growth and grace, being prepared to share, being unashamed of the gospel. And so what it looks like to just be all in, to just glory in the God of salvation, your salvation. to you. You've appointed us, strategically placed us in this community, in this church for this time. So God, we worship you. Would you do your work in us and through us? These offerings of praise, prayer, these financial gifts we give back to you who have first given to us as an investment in your kingdom, as an expression of worship. And Lord, as we come to communion, we do so, so very grateful and mindful that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, and he is the one who's provided the glorious salvation at an infinite cost. And so we remember him as we partake in communion, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.